Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Blue Mountain Village Voices. Joining us is Sharon McCormick, Executive Director of the Blue Mountains Attainable Housing Corporation. Sharon has more than 20 years of experience working in municipal governments and in the not-for-profit sector. This has included serving as the inaugural executive director of Attainable Homes Calgary Corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary of that municipality, which partnered with industry to make home ownership a reality for working Calgarians. At heart, Sharon is a mom of four young adults, an avid hiker, an outdoors person, and an advocate for healthy communities and social entrepreneurship. In this episode, we cover the need for attainable housing in our community. We discuss some of the models, barriers, concerns, and benefits. We also talk about the progress of the Thornbury site in the town of Blue Mountains. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm excited to join you today. This is a great conversation. I want to get started. What a challenging time for you in this new role in a new community, you arrive, you're ready to go. And then, of course, this unprecedented pandemic strikes and you've been doing a lot of your work remotely. What has that experience been like for you and how are you coping and, and managing? It is so bizarre. It is so, so bizarre. I mean, when I was doing research about the town of the Blue Mountains and when I was in high school, I, my, my dad was in the Air Force. I lived in Base Borden. So I went to university in Waterloo. So I remember coming up here to go skiing. So I had some recollections and I had done this research. I had this long list of things I wanted to join and people I wanted to meet and groups and organizations. And I dragon boat paddle. I was so excited about doing that and hiking. And two weeks after I started, as we know, it just, it shut down. So it's been, you know, I'll be honest, it's been hard. It's been really hard. Personally, it's been really hard. It's not been the experience that we were anticipating. Obviously, it's not the experience that anyone was anticipating for this past year. So this isn't a woe is me. This is just all the kind of go-to things, I think, in moving to a new community and ways to help and anticipate getting to know the community have not been available. It's difficult. And moving to a new community is so exciting. It's such a change for your life. It's a new beginning. It's It's an adventure. And so to have limiters put on that is is difficult. But at the same time, I've worked with you over that time frame in our work together in the Blue Mountains, uh, Attainable Blue Mountains Attainable Housing Corporation. And I also know that you have found ways to get engaged. You, you do presentations at different community events. You, you're dialing in online. So you found ways to connect as best you can. So, you know, I think that's, that's a good way to do it. Like everyone, you adapt and, and you kind of go with, with the flow. But, uh, you know, I feel like it's taken a little bit longer. I think it's a little bit different. You know, from a work perspective now, I'm, I'm speaking, you know, when you get an email from someone or a phone call saying, hey, I'm new and this is my role and I'd like to meet and talk about attainable housing. 
you're kind of another email in someone's inbox, right? Or another phone call to kind of get back to. It's different than if you're going to events in person and you're meeting people and you kind of get that connection. So I think what's really been fortunate for me in that regard, Andrew, really is the board. You and others have stepped up and I mean, that probably would have been the case anyways, but I think being that intermediate to make those connections and facilitate those things, because it's otherwise I'm shooting in the dark. You don't know what you don't know. I don't know the groups that are around and that kind of stuff. So I think as a, as a team, it's worked really, really well. I think we have adapted and I think we've gotten great momentum. Yeah. And I definitely think, and I've seen this in so many different contexts where in this past year and a half or so, those collaborative networks and the teamwork has been more important than ever and very helpful in finding ways around the gaps or the challenges. And I, and I really hope that this is something that we, we take forward with us when, when things open up and we get back to whatever the, the, the next normal will be. I hope we, we remember that. Before we get too deep into the attainable housing topic, you have been here. You have been able to experience a lot. What, what are you most looking forward to when we're back open safely? I have to say, I'm quite a people person, and I really miss that. I like to do lots of activities. I like to do things in groups. And I guess one of the other pluses, I've never spent so much time with my own husband <laughs> as I have this past year, and it's been great. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been excellent. I do look forward to kind of expanding, you know, that and really having just some face-to-face opportunities and stuff, whether it's doing yoga or going for coffee on Sunday mornings and over the course of this past year, but also in kind of reading about, you know, the town of Blue Mountains is there's so much pride that people take in this area. And um, I want to feel that. I want to kind of get to know that. I, I hear that and I have a good sense of that, but that's one of the things I'm, I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Well, the, the good news on that front and something to look forward to is it's all there. That community spirit is all there and it's a welcoming community. And I know everyone is looking forward to making those connections and getting back to that. And so I have no doubt that we will be there. And I'm, I'm excited for you to have that experience because I've had that experience myself personally, being a newcomer. I've never been in a neighborhood that I've lived in or a community that I've lived in that was so engaging and collaborative and and also willing to really have good, honest conversations. And I think that's something that I love about this community. So I'm looking forward to that for you. You'll enjoy it. Thank you. Whenever I start interviews with our guests, I always like to learn a little bit about your your career progression and your, your history. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what has your career journey been? I, I started off my professional career as a kinesiologist. Oh, interesting. Definitely a scientist kind of mindset, I think that whole systems, how do things work and how do things kind of go together and that kind of stuff. And and I have to say that natural kind of intuition towards that kind of stuff has really been consistent throughout my career. And I think that's helped put me on that experience, a career that I have had. And I think I take with me everywhere I go. I I think that systems kind of thinking, I, I tell the same thing to my kids. It's not so much the technical stuff that you're learning at university. It's the way of thinking that you're learning and your ability to analyze and be critical about the thinking and those types of things. So I went to the University of Waterloo, super loyal fan of of Waterloo. And then I was working for the Workers' Compensation Board, actually in Toronto, fixing people up and getting them back to work. 
So I worked in the rehab center in Downsview and it didn't take very long. And it kind of dawned on me that here I am helping people get their health back and be able to go back to work. And in many of the cases, seemed to be apparent things about the work or about equipment that was being used at work that I kind of thought, if this person goes back, are they not just going to injure themselves again? Or if someone else is doing that job, it just seems like, and I'll give you one example because I love this example. So there was a woman, she was, I don't know, in her late fifties or something. She worked at the Bix pickle factory, literally. She had this tendonitis. So in the first knuckle of her first finger, she had tendonitis, both hands. And her job was to actually quality control. So as the pickles got filled in the jars, she would push the pickles down to make sure that they were submerged under the brine. So she used her index fingers to do that. How many times a day can you do that before your joint just kind of wears out? And that's what was happening. She ended up with this tendonitis. And so that's just to illustrate kind of If someone else is doing that job or if she went back to that job, like we're not just going to kind of end up in the, in the same sort of thing. It got me interested in human factors is what it did. I went and did my master's degree in ergonomics over in England. They were the only university at the time, but I think they still are that actually have a master's degree in ergonomics. So you can get there in other routes, but not specifically in ergonomics. And then I moved to Australia for, for about six years after that. So I did my thesis work over there and moved over there. And when I came back to, to Canada, I kind of picked Calgary on the map and kind of had the lifestyle that I was kind of used to in Australia, very similar sort of, I think, culture, but also love of the outdoors and quite laid back. And the economy was really good at the time. So it was easy find or at the time actually create a job. I ended up creating my own business at the time and worked in the area of ergonomics. And then it kind of led me to ergonomics generally is within human resources. And so my career progression really was similar in a path to other human resource professionals. So I became a certified professional human resource specialist and kind of worked in that area of, of organizational health. I was kind of interested about 2004 of getting out of my technical field. Felt like I'd kind of gotten to where I could get. And while the projects I was working on were interesting, and some of them at the time, pretty innovative, kind of some of the things around automated garbage collection and those types of things that, that at that time weren't, weren't kind of commonplace. So I took a small project working with the city manager for the city of Calgary. His executive assistant was going off uh, working on a project. And it really gave me an opportunity to kind of see the organization from a totally different vantage point. And, and I like that. I like to see, again, kind of how things worked and kind of see across areas that I would otherwise never had any exposure to. That led me to working in the office of the mayor with the mayor at the time, which is where I kind of got, got my feet wet with affordable housing and attainable housing. That opportunity of trying to help him with, with projects that he had on his platform and be able to kind of bring those to fruition. So for me, it really was an opportunity to learn how to execute. And I think that was really important. That's kind of what I look back on and on that time in my career is you know, how do you take an idea and actually make it happen? Yeah, make it happen. And it's very much in the sort of culture of the Alberta mindset, for sure, right? That is what the province is known for is is action and and creative ideas. I I find it interesting that 
you know, you have this duality because you come from kinesiology as a background and you're very focused on process. And yet so much of your work has been engaged in community building, the, the not-for-profits that you've supported, the, the attainable housing work. I think that's often the case with many of us when we build our careers. We have this right brain, left brain approach where we learn about process or systems and then we apply them to these community building initiatives. And there's sort of the magic in that coming together. Tell us a little more about the work in Calgary and the attainable housing project that you had the fortune of, of participating in and leading. It really was an exciting time. I mean, for attainable housing, lots of people still think about it as being new, <laughs> has been around for decades here in Canada, but elsewhere as well. And it was the mayor at that time saw the need for, for filling the gap. I mean, much like what we are doing here, slightly different drivers for why. At the time, so this was in 2009, the economy in, in Alberta was, was going into a recession. I know you've been, lived out there too. So you know how it kind of does the cycle around. So it was going into a downturn. And it was a really opportune time to work with private industry because they were very driven to keeping their workforce busy. There was that to kind of leverage to work with it. And other than that, you know, the needs were fairly similar. There was just this growing wait list of people in affordable housing in Calgary at the time. And I think it's pretty much the same. The people will have changed, but the numbers are the same. A growing wait list of people in affordable housing and not nearly the supply and inventory ever that could meet that need. And so attainable housing was really created to help free up that bottleneck. I can't even remember how many units of affordable housing uh, Calgary Housing Company has a lot. I do remember the wait list, though, was 4,500 families. And so unless the people that are living in the units have another step to go to, and that's what I mean by free up the bottleneck. And that's really what we were trying to do is give people who are able to progress another step to get to market. It's building a continuum. That gap is big and the gap is big here too, right? Same, same sort of philosophy. Yeah, that's a question we often hear. What is the difference between affordable housing and attainable housing? So could you unpack that a little bit and sort of to try to define that gap a little more? Yeah, I, it is a common question. And I think people everywhere ask, ask that question. I think there's a couple of main characteristics for attainable housing. The one that most people are familiar with, I think, is that it's typically geared for moderate income. So it's trying to fill that space between affordable housing and market housing. So more moderate income as opposed to low income. Because of that, the second characteristic is it's typically geared for working individuals and working families. And again, a lot of that is tied to that middle income, where people in the middle income have employment income as a source of income, whereas for affordable housing, they may have employment income. But as, as you kind of move to the left of the housing spectrum, they have other sources of income like disability and those other types of income and they have, you know, higher core needs as a result of that. And barriers and challenges that that they're experiencing in their lives beyond just the housing. Yeah. They'll have a, a long-standing need for for housing. With middle income, people may have the ability as their careers progress to move out of attainable housing and 
either because their careers are progressing or because their families are forming, I think generally are, are the two drivers. The third characteristic that I think is important for attainable housing is it's not subsidized. So there's not a subsidy, there's not a, a reduced rent that is picked up by government in order to assist people to live there. So they're paying the full hit of the rent. Other than that, the other characteristics are, are much the same. I mean, it is non-market housing. It is another rung on the property ladder that gets people closer to market. And I think the other part, and you might get to this question, is is the, the other side of near market, which is the entry level market. And so, you know, recently when we're talking about the Meaford project that, that got announced by Loon Call Developments, you know, refer to that as, as attainable housing. So it is certainly is more attainable in that it's marks entry level market housing. So it's also close to that near market kind of threshold, which is equally important. Going to serve similar part of the same sort of uh, target individuals and families that are able to kind of a have a down payment and are be able to actually be able to purchase a home. So yeah, it does help as you say build out that housing continuum. The the picture that starts to form is that what we're trying to achieve and what community goals or economic goals or social goals are is a diversity of different types of housing to meet the various needs of people at different stages of their life. There's a question that I've often heard and a question that I've often asked myself. I know early on when I started to explore the the obvious gaps in attainable housing in our community, the, the one of the first questions that came to my mind is, well, what are the factors that are preventing the market from, from meeting those needs? I come from business background. I took very entry-level economics courses, you know, supply, demand. If there's a demand, there's usually a supplier who you can fulfill that demand. But it seems that in the housing market, that's that's more challenging. I'm wondering if you can, from in your experience and your perspective, why do you think it is harder for the market to provide these kinds of uh, attainable housing projects or to fill that gap? My answer to that question to start with is, in, in spite of, I, I would say, some common myths, I, I don't think developers are the are, are getting rich on on everyone. There's a lot of money and a lot of time that takes and. You know, a typical development takes three to five years. That's a long time to be working on a project before you actually get to either selling or, or renting. And I think the the rental market in particular, I was going to say barriers, but it's not really a barrier. I think one of the things that reduces the pool of private industry working in this field is it's a long game. The partnerships, I think, that need to happen. The number of businesses, I think, that are developers and want to hang on to that project over the long term to operate it isn't a, a large number of firms out there that are interested in doing that. And I think that's why we see these partnerships. And, and I think that's where the nonprofit sector comes in as a partner is to work with them. I think the other thing about, um, you know, why is, you know, why doesn't private industry, why don't private developers just just build this? I think to get to below market housing is tough. You can't get there without some contributions to help you get there. And I think that's why we see things, some of the tools that are being put in place, like the through the community improvement plans. And I think there's certainly a willingness with industry to sharpen their pencils, so to speak, as the term gets put to them. They recognize the need as well. And, and I think they also recognize the benefits. I know this is certainly one of the things I heard in Calgary because we were doing a home ownership program was 
this is the ability for them to tap into a pool of people that they don't currently have access to. People who are shopping in the market for attainable housing are not the people that are going into sales centers, <laughs> you know, looking to see. Yeah, but they do recognize that being the builder for someone's first home makes a pretty strong impression on them. And that leads to referrals, that leads to second homes and third homes and building that loyalty with that developer. I think there's a good appreciation for, for what that is. And I think there's also a good appreciation that there's a need. It's really about facilitating, brokering those partners to kind of come together. I think the private industry and the nonprofits and government working together to fill that need. In my conversations with builders and developers, I know that the, some of the, the concerns that they've raised in terms of barriers often has to do with a lot of planning frameworks. So, you know, municipal planning frameworks in markets that maybe haven't been updated for a very long time or, you know, reflect an older paradigm in terms of housing, economic growth, and they just don't catch up quick enough to meet the pace of the market and the pace of, of needs. So I'm wondering if you, if you have a perspective on that, you've worked in a number of municipalities and seen that. Do you, how do you think municipalities can play a role? And, and actually, I'll link this to that community improvement plan you were talking about, because I think it's a good example of that. But how, how can municipalities look at their policies to sort of unlock that potential and, and help more organizations, whether it's not-for-profit or for-profit, kind of play a bigger role? Well, I think municipalities, and I would throw in there as well, Andrew, I think the provincial government as well. I think this is their skin in the game that they have is around these land use policies. Put these policies and the legislation in place that provides the tools. I think when we look at communities that have had things like bonusings and CIPs and you know other forms of incentives uh, for for private industry, we see this mix of housing already being available, and so you know. We use a Whistler example because it seems to be a common one that's thrown around here. At the time that, you know, the Whistler Housing Corporation was being set up, they put a moratorium on, on market development. So the only game in town was going to be non-market housing. Wow, that's a bold move. That is a bold move. And that's a way of redirecting market to fill this gap. And so in other communities where, I mean, I'm just most familiar with some out West, you know, with bonusing and that kind of stuff. I mean, those in themselves are not, are necessary. They're not necessarily sufficient in themselves. I think you need to do both. You need to create that opportunity for private industry and encourage them to participate and have those policies and legislation in place that allows and facilitates, you know, this longer term vision of creating choice, creating complete communities. And I think when that happens, that's when you see the private sector actually stepping in very skillfully to provide that in, in the mix of, um, you know, the subdivisions and developments that they are. And, and I think a real willingness from them to, to do that. So, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I think what you're, if I can translate what you're saying uh, to some common language, I think what you're saying is that when we as a community identify that this is a, a social and economic and community goal, local governments and regional governments and province, when we kind of develop the tools to make it happen, 
and we create that clarity of vision and the community supports it, the development sector, it's much easier for them to engage because there's certainty, there's a vision. You're, you're not reacting to an unknown. There's actually a pathway. Is that fair? Yeah, I think, I think that totally is fair. Yeah. I think seeing who all the players are, I think having the nonprofit sector play in this field of development is also important. It's a long game for them and, and developers typically don't want to be around for that period of time. There are exceptions for sure. I'm not saying that there's not, and there are some of those that stay on and, and operate and do that. And it's great to have that all, all together in one place. But I think it really does facilitate that public-private partnerships with the nonprofits, the best of the potential. Well, and I think the not-for-profit sector is so rich in talent and there's so many ways that a not-for-profit entity can partner with all of the different stakeholders to, to, to balance some of the challenges to invest uh, where appropriate. And I think most importantly, to play a role in gaining alignment on vision and strategy. So that leads me to the Blue Mountains Attainable Housing Corporation, which you are the executive director of. Full uh, account or full transparency, I'm a, a director on the corporation as well. So I definitely have a, a sweet spot for uh, what the organization does. And I'm very proud to volunteer uh, with it. But I'm wondering if you could share with us, talk to us a little bit about the, the model of the BMAHC and uh, what have been some of its successes thus far? And how does it play that role that you're talking about? I'm going to start with the last question. You'll have to remind me back up to the to the part A of of the question. I have a bad <laughs> habit of asking multi pronged questions, so I'm I'm learning. I'm practicing. Yeah, <laughs> I think our role is is just that we have the longest mandate ever in terms of a sentence. I, I would have to say. I think some of the key words that jump out to me are things like facilitate, and I put a lot on that. That our role really is about bringing together those partners. So those partners would be government and and private industry to do that. And I think the way the model works best is when there's a mutual respect for everyone's role. The model for attainable housing in Blue Mountains, you know, what we're seeing is the municipal government step up, put some incentives in place, provide some financial incentives as well, and show a willingness to, and the political will to, to have attainable housing, to fill this gap so that there is choice of housing where currently there isn't. And, and the other part, I think, of our role for the Blue Mountains Attainable Housing Corporation is, you know, to seek out funding and contributions and, and be able to create a more of a return than the community would be getting. I think, like you mentioned before, the social economic benefits. So how do we, you know, invest that and create a much bigger return going back. So the public good, for sure, but I think also just financially, you know, how can we match up some of these contributions so that the community, each person in the community realizes a benefit, not just people who are going to be living in attainable housing, but everyone. So I think there's some key factors there around seeing this as an investment in the community that the community gets stronger socially, economically, and financially, that what is provided for part of the model to get to below market housing is leveraged. And everyone has to be in the pool. Uh, You know, I I think it really is all orders of government working together. 
as well as the nonprofit sector and the, and the private sector. And everyone has to give something because I think everyone gets something back out of it. Everyone. And I think that's a really important role for BMAHC is to explain that and to bring that to light. Really firmly believe that there are benefits for, for everybody. The need for workforce to be able to live in the community arises because there's a shortage of, uh, or there's jobs going unfilled, not necessarily a shortage, but if there's jobs going unfilled, there's a greater need for services and goods than can be met. And so, you know, the everyday person living there gets a benefit back because those needs are going to be met and builds the base of taxpayers, remembering that there is that benefit for people being able to live where they work, as opposed to people commuting who are utilizing infrastructure, not necessarily contributing to the economy or not contributing fully to the economy, not contributing socially to the economy. Those create bigger gaps. Those put more of a burden on the people who are living there to fill those other gaps. And so that's what I mean when I'm saying there's something in it for everybody. Yeah. So the more we can create a whole and equitable community, the more we all benefit from the services and experiences that we're going to receive. Just sort of socializing this concept. And you know, one of the things that we did very early on was just come forward to the community to say, okay, we are observing these challenges. It's hard to recruit people. It's hard for people to find a place to live here. So they're opting not to come. We could hear from different community groups who were saying the same thing. And I remember giving some presentations at the, the Citizens Forum at the Corner Cafe. You'll, you're going to love it when, when we can do it again, because it's such a dynamic environment. And I, I've, so much of my uh, ideas came from working with that group. And I remember talking about the issues, how difficult it was to recruit people and, and, and what that meant in terms of the impact on the lifestyle experiences. So, you know, you know, everyone who values all the great restaurants, all the great amenities here is dependent on those businesses to have staff to operate those great community assets. I had a conversation with some of the folks around that table who were seniors, who were struggling to get at-home care. And for the same reasons, because the personal support workers weren't taking posts here because they themselves couldn't afford to live here. And so we found this amazing alignment point around that, uh, you know, with, with a glass of wine and a good conversation to say, wow, this is bigger than just any one sector. It impacts everyone. So suddenly it was businesses talking about how they could see that the, the gap was impacting them. Seniors wanting to stay in the community. We're seeing that there were some fracture points there. Some of the social agencies in our community who help people with barriers, there's no place for individuals to move from, say, a group home scenario into a different type of, of living experience. So suddenly we saw so many different ways in which this one strategy could benefit so many others. And I think that's where um, that's where the pin dropped for me that this wasn't just our issue. It was our issue, everyone's issue. And so I think it's really been important to take the time to work so closely with the community to to not only create a roadmap, but also to understand where the challenges and barriers are. But you know, there's one there's one cohort that I don't feel received enough airtime in talking about the debate. And that, those are the people who actually need the housing. Uh, it would appear that those of us who are either championing for its development or those who are opposed or have concerns, we get a lot of airtime. We get we talk about this a lot. What I'm concerned about is that a lot of folks who are waiting and need this housing 
don't quite feel confident enough to come forward or share their stories. So I'm wondering, I know you've had great conversations with people in the community. Can you tell us a little bit about who the people are in our community who need this attainable housing and why? If you could give voice to them, that would be great. There's two parts to your question. Here I am adding another part to your question, Andrew. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So... So the people who are living in the community in unstable housing, I would say, or are working in the community, but living elsewhere, I do talk to them regularly, been doing as much as possible to, uh, to help them have a platform that explains, I think, to the general community who they are, what they're about, what's created this need. And I think as we kind of paint that picture of the moderate income, working individual or family, and very few of them are willing to kind of come forward. We did some videos last summer with with some. I've done some profiles on our Facebook, uh, not on our Facebook, sorry, on our, I've shared it on Facebook, on our uh, website of, you know, the target person, people who, who are aiming attainable housing to help. So I hope that helps for some people, paint kind of paint that picture. I think what what you're getting at, and and I think what's important, I think for everyone to kind of hear is the reason why we hear less from people is two things. They they feel a little bit of guilt. They feel a little bit that they're not enough. And I think for attainable housing, I would really like to see that paradigm shift because you know, like I said, we're talking about middle income earners. We're talking about people who are working. So to get to that point in your life, we're really talking about people who have done everything that they've been told to do as they grow up. They had a plan. They went to university. They went to college. They learned a trade. They did all of those things. And in any other community, they would be able to find a market house for rent or for, or for purchase. And in our community, They're not. And so I think they feel they internalize that a little bit, that there must be something that they haven't done, although they feel like they've done the right things in life. And I think it, you know, kind of comes to, you know, being a broadly community that recognizes this need and sees the benefit to every person that's going to be realized when People who are working here can actually live here. And so, you know, I guess what I'm getting at is uh, they feel like they're going to get shot down. And I think there's been a couple of those experiences, which I think is unfortunate because I think then what happens is it goes back to the internalizing it, feeling like they're not enough, feeling guilty that they haven't done something. But the other part of the question is, is because these people aren't living here. That's right. Of course, they've. So, in order to find out those stories, we really need to rely on employers and business owners to tell that story. How many times have they, you know, made that job offer and it's been turned down? Or how many times has person started and, you know, after a month gone back to their boss to say, look, I can't, I can't live in a motel forever. Or my spouse hasn't been able to come here because I haven't been able to secure a house for the whole of the family. And it's just not going to work. That's why we need the business community to step up more so than they might in larger centers like Toronto and that kind of stuff where, where the, the target market people are living there. They're just living in other f- forms of 
housing or homelessness that, that aren't there. So it's, it's those two parts. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Well, and I think, you know, what you're getting at is the concept of shame really drives people underground. In a smaller community where you have more visibility, that is even more so. I remember I, I was having a great conversation with a young professional, very much the same example that you talked about. University degree, graduated within the last five years, is not living anywhere near the town, but is commuting long distances for work. And I was chatting with him. I said, good news. The Attainable Housing Corporation has put its a registration list online and uh, you can now register. So, you know, tell your friends, register, get involved. And and she said to me, she goes, Andrew, I don't want to put my name on a list. It's embarrassing. I feel like a failure. And I literally stopped me in my tracks. And I said to her, I said, you are the furthest thing from a failure. We have failed you as a community because we are not getting it right. This strategy, the type of housing that should be here, the planning we should be doing in advance, we are not working fast enough. And for me, it was, it was one of the things that pushes me to keep doing this is that I think we have work to do and I don't want anyone to feel ashamed that they're a failure when in fact it is this ecosystem or our market that is failing them, right? So that's what drives me. I'm really glad you, you brought that point up because I think it's so easy when you're in our shoes where you're not living that reality every day. You don't, you don't understand what that's like. And I think that's, that's part of what we have to do. That's part of the work we have to do is talk about that a bit more. We're so in the weeds on the, on the planning, on the, on the, you know, uh, the talking points, the business plan, the financing, you know, we forget about why we're doing this sometimes. And I think that, so I'm, I'm glad you raised that. And I think that's something for, for us. We want to make people feel comfortable and understand that we're trying to achieve this for all the right reasons. And I think the good news is following on that, you know, four or five years ago, there was not a lot of alignment on attainable housing in our broader South Georgian Bay community. And one of the things that I, I've observed in the last year was it seems that Every municipality, either upper or lower tier, and many different community groups, a, a, a movement has been formed. So you have out on the cold in Collingwood, you know, the town of Collingwood has just announced an attainable housing working group. The, the work that the town of Blue Mountains has done on, on driving attainable housing, Gray County's community improvement planning. There seems to be more and more leaders in our community coming forward. The, the Georgian Triangle Development Institute uh, releasing a manifesto on the the 10 things that will really help. I feel like there's this groundswell of understanding that this needs to change for all the right reasons. My question to you is, having been really involved in the details uh, the last year plus, 
Do you think that at this time when so much awareness and, and planning is happening at the regional level, are we working well enough together or is there an opportunity to come together at a regional level to share best practices, take this from beyond each municipality to sort of a, a regional strategy? Do you see a pathway there? Yeah, I do actually. And I think it's the, a perfect storm for all the right reasons. I think as you kind of mapped out there, the housing is getting a lot more attention from in many different jurisdictions at the county level and at the municipal level. And it's great when that kind of clusters together because it does bring to bear the ability to kind of collaborate and to kind of work strategically and work in concert with each other that can help kind of share some resources, can help share in terms of knowledge and, and skills. And I think just even in building awareness for the communities themselves, what the need is. And, and so no municipality feels like, you know, there's something about that particular municipality. I mean, like I said, from the outset, you know, attainable housing and has been around the globe for decades and decades. I think options for homes, one of the first Canadian private industry <laughs> leaders for attainable home ownership programs, it's just celebrated 30 years. I think there might be on 32 or something like that now. So there is the ability to do it for sure. Being able to kind of work together with other municipalities and other counties, I think means that we can share that knowledge and kind of share the load. And I think build more of a profile and kind of lead the way, so to speak. What I do also see happening is a couple of months ago, and Andrew, I think you're the one that uh, put me in touch with, uh, with this, is SCADA, so the Simcoe County Simcoe County Alliance to End Homelessness created a subcommittee on housing. And that committee has five membering uh, municipalities, Wasaga Beach, Collingwood, Clearview, and Simcoe County. And it's been brilliant. So we've been meeting, I think we've had three meetings now. And we've started at a point of really doing, focusing on data collection and building awareness around the need for housing. So we're talking about the whole housing spectrum and every participant on that subcommittee shares a different part of their experience and their, the, the part of the housing spectrum with which they work. And, you know, we see a little bit less of attainable housing broadly speaking. So a lot more people work in the portion of the sector that focuses on affordable housing is, is what I'm getting at. And so I think that ability to kind of work together, focus on painting that picture, where are the needs? Um, you know, what is this going to look like? We're currently doing a number of interviews with a variety of agencies, talking to people and also talking to people who are in need of housing to hear those stories from them directly. But the agency interviews in particular, I think is quite a novel kind of approach. So what we want to know from faith-based groups, frontline nonprofits and charities is, you know, what has the impact been like, particularly this last year? What have you seen change in terms of demand and needs? And, you know, what information do you have that helps paint the true picture of housing and where those needs are? So whether that's food banks or churches or schools or developers or housing corporations like BMHC, you know, we want to paint that picture from every perspective around what those needs are for housing and 
hear those variety of perspectives, because I think that's important to really getting that fulsome picture and really understanding about where the gaps are and how we can help support each other in moving forward and fixing, (laughs) you know, getting some solutions in place. And I think what's going to be really important in that initiative, and I think it's great that you're doing it, I think what needs to happen once it's collected is it needs to be shared. And I think sometimes those needs and stories just don't get enough airtime. And I don't think that we're, and I think it's, it's, we, you know, we need that perspective in order to make good decisions. We need to have a, a full picture. With that in mind, I also want to make sure that we talk a little bit about some of the, let's say challenges or some of the objections or some of the concerns that people have to the attainable housing work that's happening. So you have, you know, there's a perspective out there that's perhaps not the municipality's job or, or that, uh, you know, attainable housing shouldn't be a focus. So I am introducing a new segment here on Blue Mountain Village Voices podcast. It's going to be rapid fire questions. So I've got a couple of common, you know, concerns that I've heard be raised and I want to list them and I want you to give me a reaction. So what do you think, what do you think these challenges represent and how can we overcome some of them? So one of the one of the first ones we often hear is that you know governments or taxpayers really shouldn't be building attainable housing. How do you respond to that? I agree they should not be building it, but should they be making the building of it happen? Absolutely. They have a role to play in fostering it, in incenting it, putting some contributions into it, and why not? They stand to gain. And then let's support those not-for-profits or other groups who who are doing that work. Yeah, you know, I think I, you know, as I said before, you know, when people are visiting, visiting as in temporarily, they come to work and then they leave. They're using the roads, they're using the infrastructure, they're using the systems, but they're not fully contributing to the economy. They're not contributing socially to the economy. So why do we not want those people to actually be paying their taxes there? So that money goes back to, to develop further infrastructure that's needed for the community. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's, it's an opportunity to engage more people in the community. That's a good point. I do hear often that concern about there's a there's a worry that that the taxpayer is going to be burdened, and I, I think I'm glad you clarified that because it is important to know that's that's not the objective here, right? I've often heard people say corporations should just be building housing for their employees. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think in exceptional circumstances we see that in some communities, but it is just that I've never had a job where my employer has ever cared about my housing situation, <laughs> and I think. Uh, <laughs> You hire a person for a job, and certainly it's not unusual for employers to help support employees by providing them with information about you know what's available in the community and, and that kind of stuff. But in terms of providing housing, that's not really on the performa of, of employers per se. They have a business to run, which does not include housing, other than some exceptional circumstances, which usually have to do with you know, where they're geographically located. So resorts who might be a little bit further away in the mountains, those types of things. Agriculture, for example, they might have housing again because they're more isolated from other areas and the nature of the work requires people to be closer or work shift work and, you know, those types of things. I understand that argument. And I I often look at it as businesses have a core competency and you want them focused on their core competency but supporting the initiatives that help those other community goals. So let me ask that question in a different way. How can employers, I think employers have a responsibility to contribute to this. What do you think the best way is for employers to to do that? 
For sure. I, I think they play an important role in maybe not just in terms of provision of housing. Do they now need to you know, change their business to include accommodation? I don't think so, but I think there's other ways for them to participate. And I think those are to you know, help the solutions. Maybe there's ways that they can either contribute to that either financially or indirectly by, you know, providing other supports. Maybe there's some sponsorships, maybe there's some resources that that they can lend to it. So whether it's marketing expertise, fund development, those types of things. And I think those are typical things that we see in lots of communities where there is housing. That's the role that the business community tends to play. So, and we will have those opportunities for our projects as well and hope that business will will play its role and particularly around sponsorships and, and fund development opportunities. The other way is, you know, if there are employers that do need, you know, have an ongoing need for housing, that there may be ways that they can participate with us to make sure that those ongoing needs are that they have a, a supply of housing uh, for their workers and can work with us in terms of being part of the project and having access to some units that will help fulfill those, those housing needs on an ongoing basis. I know that there are a lot of employers who, who are already kind of, they're either buying houses or properties for their staff or they're renting from landowners in the community and they're, they're, they're doing a bunch of things. And I think that goes so far in helping the businesses meet their operational needs, but it's sort of happening in a bit of a vacuum outside of the community housing continuum. And wouldn't it be great if those investments and partnerships were happening alongside the Attainable Housing Corp and and all this work so that together you can get more momentum from the investments and you have projects that not only help the workforce, but also help people in need, seniors and others sort of mixed use, everyone working together to get efficiencies. So I hope that what we see is a move there. But I think in the absence of a community plan or a broader strategy, what happens is smaller stakeholders just do their own thing. It's frustrating to wait for change and process to catch up. So they just, you know, I'll just buy a house and call it a day. And that might help XYZ restaurant or retail store or, but I don't know that it, it helps us achieve that community goal. So I hope that we can do more work with the, the business community to find those pathways. Okay, let me ask you, I know I said this was going to be rapid fire questions, everyone. I am failing on that front. However, they're important questions. So I'll try to speed it up. Some concern about, you know, I've heard a lot about our small town feel and how important it is to be in a small town community and how different projects, maybe if they're a little bit, have a little more density or they might have an extra story on them, that's going to impact our community. I can understand that perspective. Listen, I live in the town of Meaford. I live very close to the site of that proposed TransCanada Energy development. And I have experienced firsthand what it feels like to see a mega project or something really big and impactful coming to your community. As a resident, I, I took a step back and I was very afraid and I was very concerned about it. And so I can relate to and, and empathize with and understand how people see a project coming to their neighborhood and sort of go, wait a minute, this is going to change things. I don't know how I feel about it. So I understand that perspective. Tell me. How do we take those concerns and address them? How do we make people feel more comfortable when they're worried about that? Yeah, and it is a, a valid worry. Well, not a worry. It's a valid. It's a valid concern. I certainly understand that too. And I think you know the majority of us, me included, are very visual people. And I think the 
the best I think that we can offer for people in terms of alleviating those concerns is to see what it's going to look like to get to the design submission. I think you mentioned density, you mentioned height. I think seeing how that translates, what is that going to mean? And I think, you know, it's been a long time between point A and point B. Lots of good work has been going on. But I think that uncertainty around that is getting to, you know, being able to show them what that's going to translate to, because I think then kind of the proof is in the pudding type thing. So, and I think that visual is really necessary and needed to really show the potential for design and how that can address that. I hope one of the things that people in our community helps them with those feelings is the amount of input that they've been able to have in terms of design guidelines, in terms of surveys to provide their input about the things that are important, to know that those are going to be built into the requirements and the guidelines that our builder is going to take into account when they are providing their design submissions. So I think that's been important work. I think it's also important to realize that that does take some time to do that. And it takes time to get it right, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. The benefit of doing this consultation is worth the extra time it takes, right? Because we're getting good insights. And I know you've been working so hard with the community design team and hearing from others. So that is worth the extra time. I, I firmly believe that. And I think getting to those designs, we all want to get to the designs. Come on, bring the proposals. <laughs> Let's just see them. I want to see how it looks. <laughs> yeah, I want to see what all of this is going to happen. And, you know, it goes back to a point I made earlier. Development is a long, it's a long process. And I think certainly when I started, I think we had some pie-eyed timelines in there around, oh yeah, we're ready to go. And, you know, understanding some of this foundational kind of work and then understanding some of the things that we want to do, like the extent of the community engagement that we're doing does take some time. And, and so that's important too. But going back to the comment around the small town look and feel and the character and and that kind of stuff, we've heard that. There's not one of us either on the board or myself that want anything different than that. It's all possible. I mean, there's so many examples that we've been talking about, design guideline task force, for example, and now getting down to, okay, well, what does that mean in terms of design and in terms of the facade and how can we break it up and how can we... So it doesn't always come down to density and, and to height. You know, it's not just about the density and the height. It's about good design. Right. It's about good design and urban planning and, and context, right? And of course, we should say what, we, what you're talking about is the development in the village of Thornberry in the town of Blue Mountains on the old Foodland site, correct? What's next for that project? Where are you on the evolution and what can people in the community expect to see with that specific project in the next, say, six months? Yeah, so we've got lots on the go. So there should be lots happening here for people to stay tuned for and to be a part of a really exciting time. At this point, the design guidelines, the design task force is developing the, the guidelines. Those are important piece of information to communicate with our prospective builder about what our expectations are on those sites. It's worth its weight to take the time to get that right. And part of that is balancing not being overly prescriptive, but being clear. And, you know, earlier, Andrew, we were talking about the different roles for different for the different kind of stakeholders in this. And I think one of the things about this model where we partner with private industry is 
you want each partner to to work in concert with the other ones, but also have mutual respect for what each of the other partners brings to the table. And we want the builder to build. We want the designer to design. And that's what we're engaging them for. That's their piece of this. And so the design guidelines are an important piece around not being overly prescriptive because we want them to be creative. We want them, we, we are hiring them for their experience and for their capabilities and they have done this before. And so we want to provide them with the kind of landscape, the tools to say, show us the best of what you've got. Here's the parameters that we want. Here's our expectations. Tell us how you're going to get there uh, in terms of design. One of the things you're doing in preparing for that is making sure that all of the stakeholders' needs and concerns are are shared to them. So they're not just looking at a built form or a recommendation for a building. They're understanding the context of the community, the need, some of the concerns, some of the worries, some of the desires of locals, people who need the the housing, etc. So I think this are you are you including all of that information to the the potential bidder so that they can help bring the best solution forward? Yeah, absolutely. And I've referenced this task force a number of times that we haven't actually talked about the task force. So on the task force are people with all of those different perspectives. So there's a uh, person selected from each of the uh, residential neighborhoods close to that particular site. There is someone who's on our registration list as a prospective tenant. There's someone from the sustainability kind of perspective, the Climate Action Now group. There's a Ratepayers Association. There's a number of advisors as well from the Communications Advisory Committee, the Sustainability Committee, Gray County Housing, and Beaver Valley Outreach. And so, you know, there's, there is an amazing cross-section and it really is discussions around, you know, what are, what are some of the trade-offs for the building? So there's the design guidelines going on, the other things that are happening doing the last couple of pieces of work for to move ahead with our planning amendment application that town staff will take forward. And so that is seeking a official plan amendment for two purposes. One is some additional height to be able to have a three-story with a setback to four stories on the building that allows us to improve the yield of units and improve the proportion of attainable units. So it will be a mixed income, mixed use project, which is important. Maybe we can come back to that. While, while you're on that, that's, that's an important point though. So you're, you're, you are looking at a mixed use project to meet a number of needs. That's, that's interesting. How is that going to add value to the, to the community? Yeah, well, in a couple of ways. So by mixed use, I'm talking about is a mix of residential and commercial. So there is need for uh, for commercial space. There's lots of businesses and employers that are that are out there looking at it. And we've kept our ear to the ground, so to speak, with realtors that work in that area around what type of, of commercial uh, there could be a need for. And it is important in terms of getting to the model for attainable housing. The Having commercial does add you know, commercial is a little bit less expensive to build. So it does help in terms of the overall project cost and it does help kind of carry the project financially. It does have an important role that way as well. The mixed income, by, by mixed income, I'm meaning that we will have a mix of market rental units and attainable rental units. So it's a funny kind of term, income, but anyways, that's, that's what it means. So again, there's a financial benefit to doing that in that the market rental units 
help to offset some of the cost for the, for the attainable units. And socially, I think there's an even bigger impact, and that goes back to community. We will kind of bring that complete community philosophy to this particular project as well. Which is great. That's a way to model. It's something you want to see in the macro community. So applying those goals project by project is really important. So the planning amendment will be coming forward when we, uh, we've got a couple more studies reports to do. So that's an opportunity for everyone in the community to take part. There are the formal planning process to go through prior to council making its decision and then on to, on to the county. So there will be open house. There will also be a public hearing. So it's important for people to kind of stay tuned, share their views and share their ideas and their comments. If people listening today want to be able to stay informed, uh, either because they want to be updated on progress or maybe they want to sign up to be on the register to be a, a tenant one day, you know, how can people get in touch? What's the best way for them to get in touch and stay connected? The very best way to tell people is we've got an electronic newsletter. And so that's the best way. Recently, I got a, a volunteer on board who's going to help me push out news more frequently than what we've been doing in the past. So that's amazing. That's been another great role for the community to uh, to get involved. So they can go to our website right on the homepage is a link to to sign up for, for news. Also on the homepage of our website, people can sign up to register their interest in being a tenant at the Gateway site. That's great. And so what's the address? So the address is thebluemountainshousing.ca. Thank you so much for providing all this time and, and all of your insights and information. I feel like as a community, we are in good hands having you leading this important initiative and organization. And I think your approach to community engagement and to looking not only at singular things, but systems, right back our first sort of conversation about kinesiology and the systems and the, the operating systems around problems. I think that is exactly how we're going to get some momentum and movement on this. And it's been great to work with you on the Attainable Housing Corporation board. I'm so glad that you're here in our community. I encourage anyone who's chosen to listen to this episode today to, to go to the website and reach out to Sharon. And I just think there's lots coming in the future. So thank you for your time today. And thanks for all the hard work that you've been putting into this important community building initiative. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. And it's a real pleasure working with you as well. Well, that was a great conversation with Sharon. She leaves us with, I think, something that is very important to remember. It's not about any one group or need. It's understanding that there is a system that needs to be supported and that many folks in the community are connected to that system. Engaging across the community to ensure as much participation as possible is the best way to make sure that it is done right. Thanks for listening to Blue Mountain Village Voices, a production of the Blue Mountain Village Association. For more, go to bluemountainvillage.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. 
Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.